Let's open our Bibles together to X 21, verses 1 through 16. X 21, 1 through 16. And this is a passage where we continue to find the Apostle Paul making his way back towards Jerusalem through the eastern Mediterranean world. And um, there's this theme really over the last several chapters of Acts of many people pleading with Paul not to go. And we'll find that's the case once again in our story today. Um, In fact, the pleas are getting more and more urgent as Paul gets closer to Jerusalem. And we'll find that that these these people who love Paul uh, and have been, it has been revealed by the Spirit of God that that this is a dangerous journey. And so they're, they're going to be pleading with him not to go, not to continue on this path. And we'll find how Paul responds to that, and um, we'll think of three lessons that this teaches us about following Jesus, sometimes into dangerous territory today in our lives. Starting with verse 1 of Acts 21, we read, And when he had parted from them, this is the elders from Ephesus, as they were in Miletus, they set sail. We came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. So then again, this is getting a lot closer to Israel. That's like what is now southeastern Turkey. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having set out the disciples, sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. Then, or when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, this is going to be a lot of our focus, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since we, he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, and an early disciple with whom we would lodge. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The great playwright William Shakespeare once wrote, The better part of valor is discretion. The better part of valor is discretion. We're going to unpack that meaning of that very thoughtful line 
as we think about applying this passage to our lives and ask if that passage would apply to the Apostle Paul or us in various dangerous situations. That line is from Shakespeare's play, Henry IV, and it was spoken by a character named Sir John Falstaff, who was a knight. And Sir John Falstaff was defending why he was not willing to go and fight for the king at this time in his life. He was not willing to go into battle. And so he said, the better part of valor is discretion, meaning um, I'm, I'm using discretion, and, and he would say wisdom, and it doesn't mean that I'm not a, a, a courageous man, but it's actually, he would argue in this case, a good decision, a wise decision to preserve one's own life. So in the play, which uh, one of the main themes is honor and personal responsibility, uh, the quote is not meant as a word of wisdom, but it's really intended as kind of a lame excuse. Sometimes it's often used to, uh, as a word of wisdom for people, but in the context of the play, um, Sir John Falstaff is actually saying something that is cowardly. It's interesting that when people quote that line today, the better part of valor is discretion, or sometimes they'll kind of reverse it and say discretion is the better part of valor. It's regarded as a defense of withdrawing from danger. And the, the principle isn't completely unhelpful. There is a time and a place for self-preservation. There's a time and a place for discretion. But if that's the determining mantra of a person's life, like it is for Sir John Falstaff in that play, we will value comfort more than obedience to God. We will value discretion or withdrawal more than having the courage required to do hard things. So Paul's friends in Tyre and Caesarea predate Shakespeare by 1,500 years, but they certainly share the sentiment uh, spoken by Sir John Falstaff in that play, Henry VIII. They're trying to convince the Apostle Paul the better part of valor is discretion. In this passage, we find two groups of people trying to convince him not to go to Jerusalem, to use discretion. And they're doing so for what seem like some very good reasons. The Apostle Paul has a vibrant ministry, and he's an important teacher in the early church. Uh, he wrote so much of the New Testament, and people were realizing that his teaching was, was full of truth and power and was really pointing people in amazing ways to the death and resurrection of Jesus and what that meant for living, freed from sin, a life free of guilt, understanding the law of God accurately, understanding even the purpose of life. Paul was, was teaching great things in the church, and so people were thinking, we need his knowledge. We need him to continue writing letters to us in our congregations. And so don't go to Jerusalem where you'll be arrested. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan commentator, eloquently summarized the situation in this way. It's a longer quote, but I want to read his very good description. These uh, friends say to the Apostle Paul, by the Spirit, that he should not go up, because they concluded it would be most for the glory of God that he should not continue at liberty, or that he should continue at liberty. He should be free. And it was not at all their fault to think so, and consequently to dissuade him. But it was their mistake, for his trial would be for the glory of God and the furtherance of the gospel, and he knew it. And the importunity that was used with him to dissuade him from it 
renders his pious and truly heroic resolution the more illustrious. So, that's the situation so, so eloquently described by Matthew Henry. I commend to you his commentary on the Bible. If you love studying the Bible for yourself, gives great descriptions of um, the meaning of passages that have stood the test of 400 years of time. Certainly we can see that that is a good synopsis of this beginning of Acts 21. That these people, carried along by the Spirit, with knowledge from the Spirit, were misapplying that knowledge, dissuading Paul from going to Jerusalem, even though he knew it was for the glory of God that he should go. So, this teaches us three lessons. First, this tells us something about the reputation of Jerusalem. That the Spirit is revealing it is a dangerous place to be a Christian. Sometimes we can skip over that little detail in this story, but here we find once again that people know what happens to Christians in Jerusalem. There is a reputation in this city that there are persecutors in power. Some places have a well-earned reputation for opposing the gospel. And so it's so sad that Jerusalem itself, the holy city, People receiving the covenants of God, the word of God, through many generations has developed this reputation as the worst place someone could go and teach about Jesus. The Holy Spirit gave an accurate prophecy to Agabus about what would happen to Paul, because this is what happened to many people in Jerusalem. It's what happened to Jesus himself already in Jerusalem only years before. That, of course, he was despised and rejected by the Jewish authorities there. And after Jesus' ministry, the first martyr in the early church, Stephen, was uh, persecuted for professing faith in Christ, for challenging the Jewish leaders, for calling them to repent and turn to Jesus. And so people throughout the Mediterranean world knew what happened in Jerusalem. So we shouldn't conclude that Paul was naive, that things would be okay for him there. He was not naive that he would be in some ways an exception to um, what would what happen to gospel preachers in that city. Applying this to today, we can say that there are places in our world, in our nation, in our state, that have developed a reputation for opposing Christianity. And that doesn't mean that we hate people who are in those places, It doesn't mean we flee from those places, but it does mean we we think about certain colleges, workplaces, um, even certain cities as places where a Christian will not be very welcome. And again, this doesn't inspire hatred in our hearts towards somebody who would be at a university where it's it's very common to oppose the gospel and, and Christian ethical teaching. Certainly we wouldn't uh, hate or despise a church that's teaching a false gospel, but, but we would be aware and not naive that these things do happen. And at times, reputations are well-earned <laughs> that Christians are not welcome in certain places. Thinking again of, of workplaces where life can be difficult. Thinking particularly of somebody who doesn't celebrate homosexuality and that lifestyle, which a Christian ought not do can be a difficult place to work and to live. And so, what do we do about these places? Well, certainly we're not just called to be critical of them from a distance, but we should be honest. 
that when a son or daughter of our congregation attends a certain university or, or is pressured by authorities or peers to reject the Christian faith in their learning or in their workplace, we could be honest about the struggle of that. I think that's part of the teaching of a passage like this. Some people might be called into that place, like the Apostle Paul was called to go. With eyes wide open, some may be called to go to such a school or such a workplace. And so the Christian doesn't live in fear of those places, but like the Apostle Paul, may be called to say, I must go so that the name of the Lord Jesus might be exalted in that place. Looking to Paul as an example, we can see his desire is to glorify Christ, to share the gospel in a dangerous place. And Christians sometimes ought to go there. Particularly a Christian who is strong in faith, like Paul. And this is where wisdom is required, I would say. Uh, Would a brand new Christian, who is perhaps weak in faith with very little knowledge of the word of God, be called by God to go into a spiritually dangerous uh, workplace or or kind of life situation? Probably not. But part of the, the, the benefit that we have as people who are saturated in the Word of God, who live in a healthy Christian community, part of the benefit we have is that we're prepared to be launched out into those places and share the gospel and love neighbors. Thinking of people like Jonah in the Old Testament, right? He did not want to go to Nineveh. They had a reputation. He goes the opposite direction. But God wanted for him to go there to share his word. So this passage helps us Avoid, I would say, two unhealthy extremes when thinking about going to those kinds of places. One extreme is naivete. It's to say naively, well, I'm a Christian and I'll be just fine in that place and, you know, uh, I'll just sort of do my thing and they'll leave me alone. Uh, There's a lot of situations and scenarios where it's going to be difficult. Uh, Certainly uh, when Richard and I were visiting prisons, there are certain prisons with reputations And it would be very unwise for a Christian person to go into certain places without a strong faith and being protected by the Holy Spirit in those places. And so we would want to avoid being naive, while at the same time we would want to avoid fear. So if God is for us, who can be against us? And so Paul is neither naive nor is he afraid. He's going to go where the Lord sends him. Point number two that we can see from this passage. Paul will not be persuaded by the strong emotions of his friends. They are giving him emotional pleas. Uh, Agabus uses visual aids. (laughs) Paul's belt he takes and and binds himself up by it. It would have been a powerful um, uh, illustration or even embodiment that uh, Agabus would have shown to to Paul and to Paul's fellow travelers. And the other believers in Caesarea hear Agabus' prophecy and they they ramp up their efforts to dissuade Paul and Paul is is feeling it. He's feeling the emotional pressure of what they're telling him. That's what we find in verse 14. What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He recognizes this is, this is hard emotionally for him to do this. Are you weeping and breaking my heart? 
And then he's suggesting, stop. It's what I'm resolved to do. Now, while we would never say that we should always reject our feelings, I would never say that you should always reject your emotions. Sometimes God works powerfully through his spirit in our feelings. That can be a good thing. A great minister, Jonathan Edwards, wrote a whole book called The Religious Affections about how to discern which feelings are from God and which feelings would be pulling us away from the word of God and the path of Christ. And so I'm not going to suggest today that we should reject all feelings and we should be stoic in our following of Christ. That's not what this passage is suggesting. But the Christian faith and our desire to follow Jesus can never rest ultimately on our feelings cannot rest ultimately on how we feel about what God's Word says or about what's happening in the world or some situation that God might be calling us to. When Moses sent 12 spies into Canaan in the book of Numbers, what was the difference between 10 cowardly spies and two spies who trusted the Lord? The cowardly spies let their feelings take over. Their intuitions were determining what they believed about even the power of God. They had seen God do miraculous things in the wilderness, but when they see these large people and their fortified cities, their feelings get the best of them, and they come back with a bad report of the promised land. What happens among the faithful spies, Caleb and Joshua? They recognize that God's power is stronger than their powerful enemies. And so against what their feelings might be suggesting from them. When they see these large people, they they were so large we seemed like grasshoppers to them. They reject that feeling, that intuition. They remember what God has done. They say, we can surely do it because God has done great things among us already. So combining that story of the spies in Canaan with this passage we really see Paul doing the exact same kind of thing as Caleb and Joshua in the Old Testament. He knows that there's going to be danger there. And he feels it. He doesn't want to go um, be in a dangerous situation. He's not sort of having a delusion of grandeur. But, um, but he recognizes God's word requires it. So, Israel would need to fight battles against evil nations regardless of how they felt about it. Paul was going to be arrested. According to the word of the Spirit through Agabus, he's going, it's going to happen to him regardless of whether he likes it or not. The Christian today lives in a for, is as a foreigner and a sojourner in the world. And we learned this morning that the Lord blesses us along the path in countless ways, in amazing, wonderful ways, giving us faith and peace and fellowship with other believers. But we can also see in stories like this where the Lord requires of his people things that will challenge our feelings, our intuition. And so that leads into the third and final point. Sometimes God requires us to do a hard thing in following him, an uncomfortable thing, something that we might not feel excited about, but that God's word would command. Let's look at verse 14 again. Paul said, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. 
when he would not be dissuaded, Luke says, Luke is the author of Acts, he says, we gave up and said the Lord's will be done. Brothers and sisters, we will never see that God can make a way where there seems to be no way if our way is only the easy path. I want to suggest, uh, repeat that. We'll never see that that biblical truth is actually true. God can make a way where there seems to be no way. We'll never see it if we always take the easiest way, the easiest path forward, the path that everybody likes, the comfortable way. One of my favorite quotes that, I, that I've ever read about following the Lord was from John Calvin, where he said, better to stumble in the right way than to run with swiftness off of it. Better to stumble in the right way, in the way of Christ, than to go wherever we want because it might feel good for a moment. The Apostle Paul went into this knowing that God could help him, that God would be with him. He had seen the Lord do amazing things through him. That's certainly preceding this passage and previous chapters. People um, would just touch a garment that the Apostle Paul had, had touched and even would be healed from that. And so Paul knew that the power of God, God himself and his presence was with him. And so the places where God, he recognized, would bring transformation would be some of those dark places where he was called to go. And so we can say that the people who see God working most powerfully are those who are willing to go to the dark places, build relationships with broken people, go to a neighbor who just has, just life is falling apart, to go into a situation or scenario or relationship knowing God can make this right. God can make it good. And even though I might not feel like it, Go so that the Lord might be glorified there. I've been thinking about this as I've been training for my bike trip. And I've been thinking, what if I only went biking when I was feeling 100% healthy and the weather was perfect? There have been times in training for my trip where it's been windy. There was one time it was really windy. It's been a kind of a crummy uh, spring for going outdoors, right? And I got just right around Robert Avenue, and I gave up. I said, I am not doing it. I go back, and I worked out inside on the elliptical instead that day. But then I realized eventually, in order to really get ready for this trip, I better go out in some bad weather, whether I like it or not, to prepare for what might come when I'm in northern England and I just need to get from point A to point B. I need to train in bad weather so I'm ready for bad weather. I think about people in our church. I think about my own children. Preparing you for when life gets difficult. That includes and involves exposure to danger. Exposure to different ideas, to challenging ideas. Exposure uh, that's done wisely, hopefully, but, but progressing to, to even get stronger as time goes by. Exposure to the brokenness of this world so that when they are out in the world, they're ready to stand for Christ. They're ready to give an account of the Word of God. I think about my children's future, and I know it'll be difficult, and so, therefore, 
the response should not be just to naively say, well, yeah, but they're Christians, so things will work out. But neither is it to say they should be afraid of the world, and so we don't talk in fearful ways about the world, inspiring our kids to be afraid of the future, but to trust God. Like Agabus and the believers in Caesarea, our tendency is to want to protect and preserve ourselves, thinking discretion is the better part of valor. But if that's really where our comfort lies, then um, we'll be afraid, develop a fear. Our only comfort in life and in death is not our comfort. No, it's that we belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to a faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And when you remember this, you can go into a hostile world with your eyes open, with love in your heart, having been changed by Christ. And so you don't go into the world with a sense of hostility towards them, but are given peace so that you would be a peacemaker, as I talked about this morning. So, when we remember this, you can talk with anyone about the Lord. You can go into any sad situation. Like the Apostle Paul, you can go there, what did he say? For the name of the Lord Jesus. So, what is the reason for our courage? What's the reason for following God? Some people develop a sense of, of courage because they know they're going to feel superior to people who are cowardly. That's not the reason that we would be courageous Christians. Paul said he's going to go to Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. It's for God's glory. Perhaps one of the most difficult things that God could ask of you today is to trust him. Trust him. Another hard task God might call you to do this week is to have a spiritual conversation with someone in your family. To have a spiritual conversation with someone who you know it's going to be awkward. It's going to be maybe experiencing some resistance from that person. But you, like the Apostle Paul, might be called to go there. There's that phrase. Are you going to go there? You might be called to go there this week. To talk about Jesus. To talk about faith and church and loving God and serving him. Christ is worthy of our trust. Christ is worthy of our obedience. The Apostle Paul, and most of all, Jesus himself, teach us that a Christian will need to embrace a countercultural life at times. And this will at times also be a dangerous life. But like Paul's uh, followers and friends said, we should say the same. The Lord's will be done. The Lord's will be done in me, and in you, and in our church, come what may, for the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray.